out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Edgar Broughton, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry and his life in music, which was um, from the 60s right through to the current day. And he's got projects that are happening as we speak. I'll give you a link to his website in the notes below because you'll be able to find out what he's up to and what he's got planned, which you'll also find out in this interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years in music. Edgar, it's over to you. I'm not sure, really. I remember seeing people like um, John Lee Hooker in the flesh at Leamington Town Hall, which actually is quite small, the hall there. When I went back there years later, I was shocked at the bands that had played there. John Lee Hooker's um, <clears throat> with um, Fee's band, um, you know, the Groundhogs at the time. Of course, yeah. Tony passed away quite recently. But, yes. Um, yeah, and I mean, we, we had everybody there, the Hollies, the Searchers, even uh, Screaming Lord Such, you know. And, and I suppose it was quite, I mean, not having been to London, we hadn't moved to London then, but as a as an embryonic sort of band, I mean, to see people like that was absolutely fabulous. Yes. Um, but to tell you the truth, um, one of the most iconic uh, moments for me uh, was when my son took me to see... Um, Chemical Brothers at uh, in Brixton, absolutely fabulous. Excellent. I was sure that at some point some of their tracks were going to make the PA rattle a bit or something. No, it was like high five. It was thrilling. Yes. Now I like that kind of music as well as I like rock and blues. You know, I've always been a bit of a techno head. Nice, absolutely. You know, it was it was listening to John Peel that got me into a lot of that kind of dance rave stuff yeah. in the well yeah. the 80s was my kind of generation uh, decade and yeah um yes that's when a lot of electronic music started to develop and it was people like the orb and a guy called gerald yeah. and uh yeah, yes yeah, yeah. and and there was early hip-hop in the uh, early 80s with people like public uh public enemy and then a bit later yeah. on there was the chicago house sound and it was yeah. good stuff yeah. really and did you um and did your bro- did your parents have any kind of interest in music or arts at all? Did they introduce you to anything or play records that you found interesting? Yes, I mean it was it was quite an eclectic uh, kind of mix of stuff. So everything from Jimmy Shand band Christmas and sort of like a Scottish kind of hoota nanny stuff with Bill Haley, Little Richard, Tauber, G Lee. I mean a real strange mix of. Blues, a bit of blues, you know. Um, and then, of course, as we as we grew up and uh, started to sort of like what we liked, they liked it too, you know. I mean, they were they were an extraordinary couple, really, in many many ways. But certainly, from the point of view of their eclectic taste in music, was it was phenomenal, really. You know? Yes, absolutely. And as as we trundled into the sixties, you know, did. Um, Yes, were you? I have no idea actually. Were you there when when the first kind of the Beatles period happened? You know, and the first records came out and they first appeared on TV. Were you kind of um, yes about at that stage? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I was born in nineteen forty-seven, so I kind of saw the crossover. You, you know, like video killed the radio stars. Yes. Certainly the beat groups and then what followed and bands writing their own material post the 50s. I mean, there must have been lots of singers and bands from that 50s era that thought, oh, God, what's happening? You know, it's a little bit like Uber and taxis. We're (laughs) going to be out of a job. And they were, of course. Um, So I was lucky. I kind of saw that changeover from like the American Little Richard rock and roll right through the animals, yardbirds. Uh, you know, and Hendrix, but certainly the Beatles and the Rolling Stones' first kind of songs on telly and and the radio. Yeah, I, I was there. You were there. Yeah, because it it was kind of interesting because you had people like Lonnie Donegan who seemed to have yeah. a massive impact on people, and then you had this kind of interest in, I suppose, the Beat Generation started to appear. As you know, quite a lot of people yeah. I've interviewed from that generate you know it was hearing or well, reading Jack Kerouac's on the road, which yeah. was quite a big influence, big and then. Fur. 
Um, yeah. Yes, oh, and yeah. all that that kind of stuff, and the the idea yeah. of freedom and wildness, and also kind of enjoying jazz. And if you didn't enjoy jazz, knowing it was cool, and you had to appear to like jazz anyway, um, <laughs> it's quite quite, <laughs> quite important, yeah. you know. So that was yeah. kind of, and I guess you would have. You know, I know people, you know, mention people like Duke Ellington and Fats Domino and, and, and obviously Little Richard was this other guy who I know Lemmy and David Bowie would often say, because they were both born actually the same year you were, would always say Little Richard was that person that they went, wow, yeah. that's it. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the man. It was such a shock. I mean, I know Elvis as well, but um, Elvis was white, whereas Little Richard was, you know, we, people forget what it was like back then. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Such a wild yeah. dude. So there you go. So when yeah. did you get a kind of a, a musical instrument appear in in the house? I suppose um, I suppose I was about fourteen, and I had a. Unfortunately, I I made a mistake. My dad bought me a ukulele banjo with a skin kind of a drum thing. I mean, beautiful chrome, but it worked a guitar. So I swapped it for a Zetti six-string acoustic, which was impossible to play. The strings were about an inch and a half off the fretboard. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit. Uh, but it was impossible to hold notes down, even in the sort of the, the first and second positions and stuff. So I, I really screwed that up. <laughs> then I had a little Rosetti electric with the, the paint actually rubbed off, the black paint rubbed off the fretboard. So it was shocking. And then... I graduated to a Honor, a little, beautiful little sort of red thing. And then in a little music shop that we loved to go in on a Saturday, a really tolerant owner called Mr. Renton. He, he had this shop and he did second-hand guitars. And there was a Fender Stratocaster, a Hank Marvin job with the rosewood fingerboard, the salmon pink, 50 pounds. Wow. And I, I, and I trade the guitar in for it you know and, but i still had to pay my mom back a sort of weekly thing it was a lot of money then it's a huge amount but of course that yeah but i mean that's the guitar that's on all my albums and um except for the new one and um it's worth a lot of money now it's stupid really like a, a lot of those kind of um, early instruments are but that was the kind of chain of instruments for me and then of course we were in London and I got a couple more Stratocasters and the collection, you know, and bit by bit. It happened. Yeah, but it was, I was about 14, I guess, when I first started plinking and plonking along. Yes. And did you, I mean, at that stage, had you started to sort of follow that kind of trend in the, the musical kind of narrative of the 60s as things started to alter? And by 67, you know, the Summer of Love and the 14-hour the Technicolor Dream at the Ali Pali with yeah. you know, the world that was, you know, psychedelic rock. Did, did that sort of, did you follow that kind of path? Um, I, I think there was something where we lived in Warwick and Warwickshire there was something amazing about having records that other people didn't have and we used to go to parties with a little bag with our special records in. we all did it you know musicians and other people alike so I remember a, an album that's uh, for example there was a, a thing called Live at the Coca Cabana and it had oh Sugar Pie Santos Sonny Boy Williamson I mean all the great blues artists on this one record and then I started to hear um, little-known West Coast American bands, you know, Pearls Before Swine. Yes. Um, and a whole bunch of bands that, if you listen to R.E.M., people like that, there's no doubt that they, they grew up on that kind of music, you know. Um, but that fascinated me, uh, with the, the sort of beat culture, how that had turned into the sort of early psychedelic kind of... Uh, Bands doing their own material, you know, the record company dominating what a band played was gone. Yes. So that fascinated me. And although I wanted to play a few Shadow songs, uh, that was it really. Until we became a blues band and started doing some blues songs. And then, of course, it was possible to sort of do a gig with your own material entirely. Um, and that, that would have been about 65, 64, 5, I guess, when... The penny dropped that all the bands that were kind of doing really well were actually, although they might have some covers, Animals, House of the Rising Sun, for example, they were writing their own songs and 
that was really exciting. Along with the clothes and the um, the flower power, you know, Wool was doing sort of uh, carrier bags with a sort of paisley print on, eventually. <laughs> we knew it was over then, of course. <laughs> but yeah, that whole period was so exciting and groundbreaking, and we knew it was, you know, like... It didn't matter what the oldest said, oh, that's not real music, like they said about computer music. Yes. We didn't care. We just didn't care because it was so all-encompassing uh, and free. As you said, it's about freedom that we were off and running, you know. It was great. Yes, absolutely. And were things like, I know Joe, Joe Boyd had his UFO club, didn't he? And then there was people yeah. like um, International Times with Barry Miles. Were you were you sort of taking because I have you know listened to some of um, you know your records in that period? Was kind of the idea of the the kind of the counterculture was going to change everything? Was that did you sort of kind of I was going to say believe it? Did you really sort of have that kind of commitment and feeling that you were gonna it was going to change? Because I know Joe Joe Boyd. Um, I remember I did an interview with him, and he said that when they did the fourteen hour Technicolor Dream, the next morning they walked out to the you know, into the sunrise, and he thought, we've won, we've done it, you know, it's going to all be different from now on. Obviously, things didn't work out like that, but he said the commitment at that point was quite quite intense and, and quite real. Yeah, you see, first of all, so International Times, when we went to London, um, we lived in um, Colville Terrace, which was a sort of hot, a hot spot for change, for fusions of music you know there was a, a little church called all saints church oh yes. and we all used to go there and jam on a thursday night um so pink floyd would show up and do a couple of numbers and so on and a whole pretty things loads of bands you know and we weren't very far from portobello road where there was this incredible black club restaurant where you could only get in there if you were a white person. You had to be in a band or something, right? <laughs> so, I mean, coming from Warwickshire, that, that was kind of the culture that we were we were <clears throat> coming across. Uh, looking out of the window and seeing a light show on a wall opposite, you know, and things. So it wasn't long before we became... A, I mean, we'd seen International Times in Warwick, but it wasn't long before we started to meet the people, like uh, Hoppy Hopkins, for example. Oh. And... Um, um, Caroline Kuhn release and stuff and do benefits for these people and there used to be a thing called the International Times Run and basically it was a guy that we knew who we were living with who got a van filled it up with International Times and literally went to sellers, uh, stockists you know the odd sort of like head bookshop but I always I, and I we used to take turns to go with him because it was a fantastic drive and we'd end up in well, sort of the far north of England anyway, and then come home. And I remember one, uh, we delivered four International Times and a couple of hours uh, on two occasions to this Franciscan monk in Oxford. (laughs) It was an amazing time. I mention him because that's kind of like anything could happen, you know. Um, There was a guy called Muz Murray who who is still... um, a very well thought of mystic and sort of a writer of spiritual things. And um, we went off to the Royal Wright Stones and A3 Ring and things just to sit there all night and drink in the atmosphere. And um, so the counterculture um, and this idea that, I mean, yeah, Mr. Boyd, bless him, I can understand how he came out in the morning and felt that. But in actual fact, I'm I'm always willing to take people who say, oh, yeah, but it didn't come to anything to task. Because, of course, it did. Yes. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have had, in my mind, the movement on political issues. Remember Clause 28? Yes. Right? I mean, and it got overturned. If that hadn't happened in our day, that momentous revolutionary fervour and spirit that didn't look like it actually changed uh, society very much or the political kind of structure, it did. It did. It made things easier, although it wasn't apparent. Um, It's a little bit like how art changes, and then suddenly there's this new movement and everybody says, oh, that's fantastic, it's new. But if you look back, there were... It's kind of always derivative there were landmarks along the way. And I think we were part of that. On top of which, technically, I knew people into technology. I mean, back then, let's say, 
69.70, we visited the son of the guy who wrote Tark and the Otter, mm-hmm. and a nice little place in Devon. And that's all I knew about this guy. Uh, and then he turned out to be a quite good guitarist, and we jammed together and stuff in his place. And he took me to his greenhouse. And in his greenhouse, he'd got a little Atari 525 actually running the watering of his hydroponic tomato plants. God. So, and he had a windmill, a windmill that supplied the electricity for it. So a lot of this stuff that eventually came to being and thinking about stuff started there. Yeah. I mean, all right, people who lived in the 20s, 30s, 40s would say, oh, no, 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 we, we, we were aware of this, we, we were thinking about it. But they didn't have the materials and the actual wherewithal in terms of the technology, perhaps to do something about it. No. But we did. It started, you know. Um, it's. I mean, look at look at amplification today. It was nothing. I mean, you know, go to a concert, any concert, it's wonderful. Yes. Stage monitoring, in-ear monitoring, you know, you don't even need speakers in front of you. When we started, there was nothing. There was virtually nothing at all because people had relied on you know, people being quiet even at dance who so they could hear the band. You know? Yes, that's true. Or they needed 20 brass players or no, drummers and, and people to... So there were all kinds of extraordinary things that began then. So, uh, yeah, that's that's my take on... That's, yes. It, well, look, it, it did them out to a hill of beans, it did. Well, it, absolutely, absolutely. And there was an amazing exhibition at the V&A which was titled something like So You Want a Revolution? And they really captured all those seeds that you mentioned, you know, from, yeah, just, uh, for, yes, from sort of different chapters, which kind of all altered yeah. during the 60s quite radically. And, you know, a lot of yeah. laws came in, a lot of attitudes changed, and actually it was it was kind of an amazing decade. And, I mean, as, yeah, that's why it still spoke about still to this day, and people put on these amazing yeah. sort of displays and books and everything yeah. else like that but I have to say when you mentioned Muzz Murray I thought god I haven't heard that name for a few decades and I remember getting in touch with him and getting a I think it was a CD uh, or some CD uh, rom of his book or fanzine that he brought out called Gandalf's Garden and yeah. I'm a, yes yeah. and uh, Muzz Murray yes I must have it was it just brought a big smile to my face because I thought he was a lovely chap that I kind of uh, got in touch with and said, you know, I'd love to get a copy of... Yeah. He'd, he'd sort of archived all his stuff on this uh, yeah, CD-ROM of some... Yeah, absolutely amazing, yes. He and, lives in the south of France now. He actually... He's still about. He's living in France. Yes. Yeah. Magic, magic moments. Yeah. So then, as as with with the, you know, the, as the band form, formed, did you f- feel like you had a sort of an idea of what you wanted to sound and look like? Our idea, I mean, it was, in a way, as people described us later, we were the proto-punks. So often uh, what we did was very simplistic. It was very raw and hard sometimes, but also quite melodic at times. And we did whatever we felt to do. We didn't really copy anybody. Well, blues, beef art a little bit, of course, and we were influenced by people. But we didn't really, I mean, a lot of bands we played with, honestly, this is the truth, big names in our eyes um, said, oh, well, you know, we're not we're not going on before them. What, why not? You know, promoters told me, well, because they're not really musicians. They only know three chords, which was a lie. <clears throat> but, you know, a bit like they might have said about the punks. Yes. And, of course, we used to say to promoters all over Europe, all right, let, let them go on after us. And when we finished doing out Demons Out, they yes. all changed their minds. They all changed their minds. They didn't want to go on after us ever again. So whatever it was, we had this way of communicating, apart from the music songs, um, some of which, so there's a couple of songs, which I think will probably last forever. Um, but maybe not so many of them. You know, time moves on and things become dated. But the spirit of what we what we were mostly about was connecting with an audience, communicating stuff to them. Yes. You know, so we'd go to a town and we either found out something about what was going on politically or what the issues were. And of course, that that was a novelty for people. Oh, he cares. He knows. He knows who we are. So then, when we came to sort of ask them to join in with us and do the cathartic stuff, they did. Yes. 
Uh, yes, it's, it's interesting, yeah. and I know that there was quite there was a few bands, weren't there, from that scene, like the the Deviants, who later became the Pink Fairies. I suppose yes. was Hawkwind going at that stage as well. It's sort of embryonic, you know, really. Yeah, I mean, I think Lemmy was going to go and play with Jimi Hendrix, but he missed the bus or something. <laughs> so no, it's tr- true, really. I mean, he he always used to say how he, he regretted not getting that. T- he started as a roadie. You know. That's right. Well, um, he was in the Rock and Vickers, wasn't he? This one band, and then yeah, he, then, yeah, then yeah, he, yeah. then he became a roadie for Jimi Hendrix, yeah. and then Hawkwind got their bass, bass guitar for Hawkwind, and and um, yes, yeah. then Motorhead, and the rest is history. So yes, there was a kind of an interesting underground movement that you were part of, and there was also people like John Peel with his Perfume Garden, oh, which well, was well, John Peel, of course. I mean, he. he uh, one thing I would say though, which. Um, Mick Farron, Pink Fairy, Social Deviants, right? Yes. On it, un- unfortunate, but kind of interestingly, uh, a promoter got in touch with me and said, can you play this gig in London? You know, it's closed now, the borderline. Yes, I can do that. I'm on my own. Yeah, sure, that's okay. And Mick Farron's playing, so that'll be nice. And do you know, Mick <clears throat> had written previously a review, because he was a reviewer, of the EMI box set that, the albums that we did with EMI, four of them. And uh, he reviewed it, and all he wrote was inane hippie nonsense. Now, Mick was a kind of... He wasn't wasn't a rival, but Mick always complained when he played with us, and he used to say, they've got that bloody out demons out, and you can't get past it. And he was right. Um, So when I... When I and somebody said, Oh, they saw him and he was doing some gigs in Brighton and he didn't look very well and all the rest of it, right? So I've got a little plan. When we tu- when I turned up at the borderline, I was gonna go into the dressing room and say, Oh Mick, oh you look terrible, mate. What's happened? You know, offer him a little brandy from my flask. What actually happened was I walked into the dressing room and there's this huge guy sitting there, hardly able to breathe. The, the percussionist had told me like it was really difficult to get him out of the house that day. It was awful. And I thought, what's he doing? And, and I thought, my people would never let me go to a gig like this. So the gig goes on and, um, you know, there's somebody out there playing and it was their turn to go on. Um, again, he wouldn't go on after me, um, even though I'm on my, I was on my own, right? He still yeah. wouldn't. And as he got up from his, he said, oh, I'll see you later, Edgar. And as he got up from his seat, I saw this big oxygen bottle, uh, which they took to gigs in case he needed it. Anyway, about a song, and I think even the first song, halfway through, he'd already said, oh, excuse me, before he started to the audience. I had a bit of a a funny turn uh, there, uh, you know, and uh, and I heard this music start, and I thought, oh, that's not very good. And then I heard a little bit of him singing, and then it stopped dead. So I went out, and of course, Mick had fallen over, and, and actually he died at the borderline that night. So I, I went from sort of saying, I'm going to sort this guy out once and for all, right, for his inane hippie nonsense. And it turned out to be, I ended up writing a song about it, because it was very, actually, it was very sad and... And, and it made me think of all the sort of laughs we we had had over the years. And the night before we played the Isle of Wight Festival, for example, we were in rugby. Okay. Yes. So imagine like a little band like us driving all the way from rugby overnight, uh, no sleep, to the Isle of Wight Festival. And and the deviants were on at this gig. I don't know if they went on before us or not. I think they did. But Mick, bless him, he had a Shaw microphone stand that had this heavy cast iron bass. And he's swinging it round and it fell off on his foot. And he tried to carry on and he's hopping about like it's part of the act. And that stuck in my mind. Um, so then we drove to the Isle of Wight Festival and the guy wanted to put us in the tent. My mom, who was driving the van, was furious. We haven't come all this way to play in a tent. The pretty things were a bit late arriving, so we got their spot. So, it, 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 by accident, the Isle of Wight was the first huge festival that we played to people. Amazing. And um, we, we just wanted to keep doing those gigs, really. So, yes, absolutely. 
Was that the one that, um, I don't know, Chris Christopherson was on, or the one Jim Morrison and the Doors were on? Was that the first or second one you played? It, I think it was the first. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know, the famous, I know, amazing, amazing concerts, actually, they were. Did you, with with, yeah. with the band, did you get a man, you got a manager quite quickly. Was that um, we Pete, did. Pete Jenner? We did, we we were living in the Fed in Colwell Terrace. We'd only been there maybe for a few weeks. And uh, this hip, rather delightful hippie young woman came by. And she said, by the way, she said, are you a band? And we said, yes. She said, there's these people around the corner called Black Hill Enterprises. You should see them. So, of course, we got all our flares on with bells, literally bells on our bell bottoms, tied the ribbons in our hair and stuff. And we, we all piled around there. And we and, and Peter uh, had got this gig, I think, Olympic College. Um, and somebody let him down. He said, you'll play there tomorrow. Uh, so he said, yeah, OK. And uh, we, went, we went there. And um, I remember breaking the string and borrowing somebody else's guitar. And I thanked him. <laughs> I said, oh, some cat's lent me his guitar. And uh, he shouted back, I'm not a cat, I'm a human being. <laughs> you know. But anyway, after the gig, Pete Jenner said, I've never seen anything like that. Let's do it. Fantastic. And then a month or two after that, we were signed to Harvest because Peter, uh, Peter Jenner was now involved uh, with um, the people putting Harvest label together. It was partly his idea. Yes. Of course, he'd got a stable of bands, uh, most of which would fit on it. And, 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 and we did. So, but that, I mean, I think we'd done an audition, uh, audition for Ireland before that. Right. And they didn't want us. They were, they were starting to get into reggae and they, they couldn't see any potential. But, but Jenna saw it and Andrew King and, and that was it, really. You know, so we were with them quite a long time. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you got your, the first album came out quite quickly, didn't it? Sort of 69. Yes, it did. Which was, yep. um, and you've got, was that recorded at um, EMI Studios, Abbey Road? Yes, Abbey Road, yes. Yes. And when you were, because all the material is being written by the band, there's no covers, are there? No. Um, if you, there, there, are, um, there are extra tracks, you know, bonus tracks. I think there's a version of Smokestack Lightning, and I think that's probably the only cover. Yes. Uh, but I, I wrote most of the material, some of the material was written by you know, a bit more collectively. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, because you've got, um, yes, it's, and Pete's the, your producer at this stage as well, isn't he? So can you remember much about that session? Had you sort of rehearsed all the material to the absolute nth degree and you just had to go in and record no. it? No, no. I mean, uh, uh, some of it we didn't know what we were going to do next, but we'd been playing this live for maybe two years, the first album. Right. And a little bit of the second album, but not really. And this is, it talked to any band and they will all, all tell you the first album was kind of easy because they'd been playing it, um, Little Pubs, you know, Hospital Fates, whatever they were, they were actually playing the material. So that if they did get a deal, they'd kind of probably got an album's worth of stuff, which yeah. is certainly true of us. So, but it wasn't rehearsed to the sort of degree, as it were, because that's not the kind of band we were. You know, we'd look at each other and extend something I would jam something, especially the three-piece stuff, you know, that we were, we started out with, you know, the trio stuff. Yes. Yeah. And at that stage, you'd also, 69, which is an amazing year, you also did a Hyde Park free concert, didn't you, in, was it September time, with, with Quintessence, Al Stewart and the Deviants, which is a Blind huge... Blind Faith. Blind Faith as well, right, yes. Right. Well, they, they were flopping the bill. It was about, uh, uh, you know, it was like the first super group. They were awful, really, really awful, in my opinion. <laughs> yes. Can you, I mean, at that stage, because things changed so quickly, didn't they? Did you, did you sort of think, where is this going next, or were you just kind of living in the moment? Um, after that Hyde Park gig, it was, a, it was a really sunny day, and I decided to walk back across the West End, I suppose, um, to get to a bus or whatever to where I lived in Lordship Lane. And uh, what was really weird, there were dozens of people coming up to me, can I have your autograph? And it was the first time it had happened, and it was just that one gig that sparked it all off. So, I mean, on one level, it was, 
you, you had to be where you were in the moment because the moment was so uh, complex and wonderful, all sorts of new things going on. Um, so there was, I mean, at that particular time, there was very little thought for, so what are we doing next day? We, we just did day by day by day. And every day, of course, we were almost every day for the first three years, we got a gig. Yes. So, so we just carried on, you know, from one to the other. There'd be standout gigs. Um, you know, we did a, a Biafra benefit in, in Battersea Park. We did the first three concerts in Germany that EMI paid for. So, uh, you know, there was always something a bit more momentous, a bit more of an occasion uh, that sort of came in the scattered form amongst lots and lots of gigs all over the place, just touring, you know. Yes, amazing. When did you, and can you remember, I mean, obviously you've been asked this in every interview, Out Demons Out, can you remember how that song evolved and, and sort yeah. of developed? You must. Yeah, there was a band, there was a band um, that contained a couple of guys, uh, Tuli Kupferberg, who had a bookshop. And uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a sort of, um, I suppose he was an academic, really, an intellectual who had a bookshop, uh, but he was political. And they decided that they were going to levitate um, uh, the, uh, what's it called in Washington, you know. The, the, oh, the yes, they were going to circle something, you know, like some political yeah. building and they were going to, but yes. That's right, yes. Yeah. So, and they did it. They did it. And we got all these hippies to turn out, sort of out demons. So, and it was, a stra- it was just almost a recording of a demo. By that, I mean a demonstration, yeah. You know, a sort of political demonstration. Um, and I just thought, whoa, what if we make this political? Like, so on the on the last gig we did for Rock Palace, uh, on, well, the the last sort of televised thing in Germany, the band, I actually said the demons are still with us. They are called government. So we could, we could, I mean, there was a gig in Arkham where the police were uh, at the football pitch. Uh, three-day festivals, wonderful, Pink Floyd, all sorts of people on. And when when we arrived, me and the roadie, a bit earlier than the rest, uh, there, there was all sorts of talk about the police being really violent, yeah? Yes. And when we arrived sort of to actually play, you know, 20 minutes before, this girl was dragged out. I mean, I, I say, maybe teenage, young, young woman, was dragged out of the crowd with her head bleeding. By two coppers and a policewoman following. The truth, this is true, you know. And then we found out that the coppers were in the director's box with infrared binoculars looking at people in the crowd and they were dragging them out because they were smoking pot, right? Mm-hmm. So we go on stage and I said, we're not going to play until the police in this box, move to a better place and stop being violent. Well, I stood there for, I don't know, five minutes, nothing. And suddenly, in German, the crowd start chanting, out, demons, out, rauch, demonen, rauch. And it was massive. <laughs> and my brother just tapped, we didn't play it because we wanted to do it later. So my brother tapped a drum, a drum beat out to encourage them. And about 10, 12 minutes later, we saw the lights go off and we saw these policemen leaving the director's box down the steps. And the police sort of, they did. They withdrew to where they should have been, you know, a little bit by the side of the stage, a little bit, you know, like you wouldn't expect. And there was no trouble, not a thing. And uh, I remember uh, Nick, Nick Mason from the Floyd came and he said, fantastic, he said, that's what you do, that's what you do. And... Uh, we did. we did. We did that a lot. We used it, you know, against oppressive people, really, wherever yes. we could. And I guess um, that's where you got your idea for the song Freedom came, came from as well with the, um, was it Kate, Kent State, the, the shootings the there? University, Ohio. Yeah. Yes, yeah. my God. It was, I sort of, yeah, because it's... You know, about, you know about the Keele University thing? No, vaguely. They asked us to go and play there. They'd occupied the university. And I remember sitting in the, the Chancellor's office, telephoning America to speak to the students who were also barricaded in, in the university over there. Right. Uh, quite momentous stuff. I mean, really, I mean, 
memorable stuff. Um, and the, oh, we gave some paint, spray paint cans, because we used to carry them and give them people. Yes. And uh, the, we played in this new refectory, and it, uh, they covered the walls with <laughs> slogans. And I've never seen so much intelligent graffiti in my life. They also graffitied the van, which I wasn't so keen on. And somebody <laughs> did comment, oh, it was all right when he gave the paint to the students, but he didn't like it himself. Fair enough, you know. Um, it wasn't too bad. But we went to court for that. I was prosecuted, you know, for... Incite, um, incitement. Incitement to riot was the first thing that I did. I wasn't happy about. They dropped that. Yes, um, I guess. I guess um, sort of, the band must have been getting quite a reputation at this stage. Were, was, oh, yeah, were yeah, people yeah. kind of scared of the band and, and the kind of what what was happening? Depends Some... who you were. It depends who you were. You know. All right. I mean, we were <laughs> the guy Storm Hypnosis, the, the sleeve guy. Oh yes. You know? Who did who did the meat album with a, with a real person hanging upside down in a in a you know and <laughs> at the market went down the market and sort of hung up there in the meat only for a minute while they took the photograph because they wanted to kill him you know anyway the guy who did that he said when Pete Jenner asked him to come and meet the band to to do the first that sleeve he said he was shitting himself because he'd seen the photographs and he'd heard what he'd heard uh, and he really he was he was scared. To go around, and he wrote, he wrote in his book, and when they did the book with all the, the sleeves that they were proud of, that they were they were true gentlemen, really clever, intelligent, and lovely people to meet. So that's who we really were. We were we were kind. We we cared about people, but if you crossed us, we really really changed. And there were maybe eight or nine of us, including road crew. So you didn't really want to upset us. We weren't violent, but we did have a way of getting our own way and making people feel a bit silly if they if they deserved it. Yes, I suppose that's right. I yes, yeah. I did an interview with Storm actually a couple of years ago. There was the book Us and Them, the authorized story, wasn't it, of hypnosis? Yeah. Yeah. Or I don't know. There's been several recently, which has been quite amazing. Yeah. So as the as the the optimism of the '60s, though there was the Vietnam War and race riots and, and lots of other issues going on, but there was the, there was the other underlying good things. I mean, then then we have you know the death of Brian Jones, and then suddenly Hendrix, Joplin, and Morrison all sort of passing in such a quick kind of couple of months. What was it like for you, sort of you know, as a musician, realizing these were people that you'd probably were quite aware of, and then suddenly thinking, "Gosh, that's that's kind of a sobering moment." Well, I suppose, to put it simply, yeah, very, very sad, and be careful what drugs you take, how much. Yes. Yes, that's um, good good advice. Did you... Oh, are you still there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry. Sorry, it went so quiet, I thought. I was just trying to abbreviate my answers, because if we're going to get to where it is now, we're going to take a long, long time. <laughs> yes, it would take quite a bit of time, wouldn't it? Yeah, and then, and then as, as you went to do your second album, Sing Brother Sing, did, was, was that, what was the momentum and the atmosphere like with the band at that stage? Because suddenly it's the pressure to record a whole new album and, um, yes, get back and get a different focus than playing live. I, supp- I suppose we... Um... We didn't really, we didn't really go with all that. There was pressure, so I think we made something. We really made something. We just wanted to do, um, and it didn't quite work in terms of just what we wanted to do. You know, for us, in fact, we never really did that until Superchip. But um, so, I mean, there was some good stuff on the album, but I think it was the third album with Evening Over Rooftops, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where we really had this concerted effort to uh, pull together all the best bits of who we were and what we could do. Whereas before, the first album, okay, like I said, that was more or less what we'd been playing. A couple of things were written for it. The second album was a little bit of that, but it was mostly, um, yeah, some new writing and trying to do things a little bit differently that we hadn't thought of. Um, but we never we never were like, we, have, we never had this style that just carried over. We were always doing odd little things, you know. Um, and of course, evening over rooftops was one of them. You know, yes. um, I mentioned that because that's probably the one that most people know and love. Yes, um, absolutely. So that was the third album, and then after that, 
uh, we changed management. Um, it was a mistake. I would have missed the experience, but it was a mistake. Uh, we went with a bunch of people called Worldwide Artists and Ems, who were who were actual gangsters. They really were gangsters and have been gangsters, you know. Uh, Pat Meehan and uh, that that crew. Um, and mates of Don Arden and, uh, and the Black Sabbaths. Right, Sabbath. yes. Don, Don you know. the uh, famous Don. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we actually took worldwide artists to court in front of a high court judge with a little hippie solicitor, Brian, who was, who was absolutely gorgeous. Yes. And... Um, we we want we want they took everything they wanted the Range Rover they wanted the truck they wanted the equipment all kinds of stuff you know and uh, we went before this High Court judge and he, we, we went twice and he was so annoyed that they didn't even show up uh, at all or, or send anybody that he gave us everything that he thought we should have that belonged to us rights of music the whole lot. And I don't think that's ever, I mean, it was, it was because we weren't like the Rolling Stones or whatever. I think it didn't really make the press as much as it might have. Although Private Eye did a five page spread about it um, because it was unique. Um, but, but it was fantastic to be, be rid of, of that thing, you know. I mean, yes. These were the days when they, they sent some roadies to our studio in North London broke in and took all the equipment yeah. so what, and put it in their warehouse. So what do you do? What would a normal band do? Or oh, they might get a solicitor or they might go and tell their mom and dad and cry a bit. So we sent some Hells Angels to their studio or their warehouse and we emptied it completely. So now we've got all our equipment back, but we've got about four or five other bands' uh, equipment as well that have been taken from them. You know, so this was, we've now got this and they, they, they go to court and we answer and we won. And it was, you don't really need that in a musical career. But I must admit, because of the nature of some of the stuff we were involved with and in, it was quite an exciting time to actually tell these people, we're not frightened of you at all. You can do what you like. You know, we're, we'll take you on. Yes, um, we made uh, we made a, a couple of good albums, sort of with their own bandages. Um, we actually stole the tapes from uh, I say stole the tapes. Um, they stupidly put them uh, by the front door for somebody to pick up to go into storage, and we we just happened to be coming by. We saw them, so we picked them up uh, and went to Norway to finish it, knowing that of course they did have some rights to some of it, and we were quite prepared to discuss that and sit down, and we did. And worked that all out. But that album would never have got finished if it wasn't for Arnie Bendixson in Norway, who said, come and live here for a couple of months and, and finish your album. And then, of course, we, we met Mike Oldfield. We went down to his place. And then he played mandolin on it and some stuff, and we mixed some stuff, and, and, and he was really good about all that. So, But we were forced to do that, partly because of this situation with our management, you know. Yes. Yeah. God, that's extraordinary. I know I spoke to a few um, American New Isn't York and uh, New York musicians who had the similar thing with the mafia in New York because yeah, I think of course, most of yeah. New York was run <clears throat> clubs, especially in places were run by the mafia or had mafia connections. And yeah. there was another guy, famous Absolutely. guy called Morris Levy who was one of those kind of um, thug. <laughs> Enter, yeah. you know, entertainment managers who, you know, yeah. just and I think um, John Lennon had a lot of problems with him because I think he, yes, decided he was going to take over John Lennon's life. And yeah, God, it's kind of a weird one. We forget how horrendous those kind of experiences are, really. But yeah, Don, Don Arden is quite famous, isn't he, for dangling someone out the window? I'm not sure if that's completely true, but um, it sounds. Well, uh, I mean, the, the, the thing about Don Arden is, you see, there are stories. That, that are sort of partly true and partly not true. Sharon tried to run him over once in the drive. Where I mean, I went to his... You'll like this. I went to his house once because I was involved with one of his mates. Oh, come in, Edgar. Come in, right? So I, I go in and there's this long hall full of onyx and sh tasteless shit. And right at the end of it, there's a, a Bible lectern, gold eagle lectern. And there's a book on this lecture. And so I, I walk up to it and he says, oh, are you, you're religious? I said, no, no, not really. 
And I open it's a, it's a Bible. It's a beautiful leather-bound Bible. He turns around to me and he says, guess where I got that? I said, I have no idea, Doc. So he said, yeah. He said, I'm going round to Luke Old, old Andrew, you know, uh, what's his name, Luke? Luke, um, Andrew, Andrew Luke. Rolling Stones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Long. And he says, uh, he, he walked in there, and this lectern's in there, right? And it's got the Karma Sutra on it. So he says, I'm not having that. What do you think you're doing? This is Don Arden, right? You can't put that on a thing like that. How much do you want for it? So, of course, Holden says, so much. And he, he says, so I bought it. And here it is. What do you think? And I didn't tell him what I thought. <laughs> so uh, there's, uh, we haven't got time to go into the conversation that I had with sort of uh, IRA sympathisers and stuff. In this, in this same night, in this place, with these huge dogs barking outside every time anybody came within yards of the place. It was a strange situation. Um, but his mate, who lived on the Isle of Wight, in his book, he says how in Chicago he was having dinner with a mafia Don, and Don kept taking the piss. And this happened on two occasions. And when Don went to the toilet, this Don Don said to the other guy, sort him out, we ain't going back to England. <laughs> this, was the, this was how it was. Yes. I was staying with this guy, and... Uh, his tailor came round to get some money for a suit that, that, that he was owed for. And he goes to the door with a luger, opens the door and says, what do you think you're doing coming round my, you know, unbelievable, unbelievable stuff, you know. <laughs> so we were, we were well, we were well shot of them, you know. Yes, absolutely. And there's a well read. There was a, there was kind of a, a, not a famous picture, but quite an iconic picture of, David Bowie at the Ziggy Stardust event where there's, you know, Lulu, yeah. Mick Jagger, Jeff Beck, and yourself. Were you were yeah. you at that... Con had you known much of or been following, you know, David's career up to then? Well, we were mates. I mean, um, at Brighton Dome one night, um, there, was a, there was a bill put together by this promoter, the long story cut short, and his band was on, right, after David, who was solo still. And I remember hearing Space Oddity and going out thinking, how does he do that? How does he sound like that with just him and a guitar? Yes. Fabulous, right? Angie was around, lovely. That's the first time I met her. And so this band goes on, the promoter's band, and they took up loads and loads of time to the, to the point that our roadies went on and pulled the power out on them. Yes. So we could only just get our set to get in because of the time that was left. And they cut the power off. I mean, not our roadies, but the, the uh, Brighton Council people. It was the dome, right? So we carried on out Demons Out with just drums. We'd done it before for various reasons. And David came on and sang it with me. And we just shouted it right in the crowd. And then in the end, that finished and off we went. And we both got a letter, David and myself, from the council saying that we were banned from life, for life, from ever appearing at the Dome again. <laughs> Blimey. I wish I'd still got the letters. There's lots of things I wish I'd still yes. got. Yeah. That wasn't... So anyway, of course, you know, um, I went to the gig and uh, saw him kind of like uh, surprise the rest of the band by telling them that this was the last gig. And uh, yeah, and it was in the picture and stuff. And yeah, it was a lovely party. It was a great night. Fantastic. I well, I would about 6 a.m. Absolutely. Because I do remember I did an interview with a guy called, is it Billy Ritchie, who was in a band called Clouds or One, Two, Three? And I think he, I don't, oh, know, yeah. I don't know if you ever remember, they were a bit like the early prog band. He was a keyboard player. And yeah. I, think, I think he was talking about some of the gigs he played with Bowie at that stage in the early early 70s, if not late 80s, uh, 60s, when he was still quite acoustic. Right, yeah. But yeah, so you sort of, you followed his career from that first album with Space Oddity through to Hunky Dory and uh, Ziggy Stardust. And was it Aladdin's? Well, well, I mean, I didn't, I didn't sort of follow his career. I mean, we, we did gigs together and stuff and we, we had conversations now and then. I mean, he, he wanted me to play at one point on a track called The Candidate. Um, he wanted me to play guitar, but as uh, Charles Shah Murray said, 
uh, he tried because David got in touch with him. But we didn't have mobile phones then and internet and stuff. So they couldn't get hold of me. And then two days later, David went to Switzerland and had his breakdown. And uh, so that was the end of that. But we we did like the early art centres, you know, together and kind of, so we known each other on and off, all sorts of. Uh, and I knew Angie very well because um, we lived close by each other many many years later. Yes. Did you also meet Tony DeFries and Main Man and all that gang? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, again. Uh, Speakeasy, some one of those gigs. Yes, because there were those there were clubs in London at that start at uh, that time called a Sombrero Club, which was quite famous for sort of outrageous characters and interest in sort of nightlife. Did you were you were you mostly in the <laughs> just in in the studio playing gigs, or were you sort of part of any kind of community in London of um, hanging out with other musicians and bands at that stage? No, no, no. I mean, I used to go to the Speakeasy sometimes because it was a place just for musicians and friends but I never went clubbing much or partying much you know that had always been my my kind of style really I never did no I wasn't really a party person you know? no no god the hard work but, yeah yes can I just ask, can I just ask you David yeah um, how, how, lo- how long is this going to go on for because oh. we're only halfway through the career <laughs> sorry yes um sort of I don't know another um do you oh are you have you got a date have you got um have you yeah it's nearly four yeah is this um do you have another like 15 minutes I don't know 15 20 minutes is that okay or or you yeah, yeah you, that's okay okay Providing we can get provided we can move on and get to sort of more some of the more recent stuff yes because as I've got I'll tell you why I say this because it's one of my strap lines when I'm doing a gig I often say although I will play songs like even the other rooftops I often say to people, I'm not a museum, no. I'm an artist. And it's absolutely essential, therefore, that I live in the here and now and make stuff. Or not, or not do it, you know. Yes. So, so I, mean, I, I don't mind talking about all the, the, the ancient history, because, of course, it's, it is important. And some of the, the things that are going on concurrently with, you know, the band and my band uh, are very interesting, but... Yes. Okay. Well, that's I, fine. Let's let's can we shall yeah. we just jump to the jump to now, <laughs> and we can go back well, to them. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, what's the kind of the projects that you're working on at the moment? Because it is yes, you're right. It is quite. It's just as interesting of what people are doing now than what they were doing sort of um yes thirty forty years ago now. Yes, that's that's right. Yeah. So, what's been the last five years and the kind of the current period that you're you're working on? Well, the band broke up about 12 years ago. Not even going to go into that. It's well reported. I've done interviews about that. Uh, but it really was the end when we'd resurrected ourselves, like people do, you know, um, a few times uh, for all sorts of strange reasons. But it finished, and I was left um, in a situation where I, I, I really honestly didn't know what to do. But there was a slogan from when I was a kid trade union slogan and it was a fair day's pay for a fair day's work yes and this rang around my head for i don't know why it came in and i what's the significance of this and then it dawned on me i will play anywhere in the world to one person 10 people that could fill a pub or in the back on i don't care where it is or what it is i will pay i will play for them for one day of their pay and somewhere to sleep, and my lodging, as it were, my, my, my food, you know, yes. and sort of, and drink. And I played all over Norway, all over the UK, some gigs in Germany. It was wonderful. I played, I mean, once I played to one guy, sitting in front of him, the guy was really ill. Uh, I played to four people in the kitchen in Sheffield. I played to... A thousand people in Trondheim in Norway, you know. I mean, it was, but it was all about individuals saying, "Come to my home," yes, and meeting people in their houses and stuff. It was absolutely thrilling. So then, of course, I'm starting to do solo gigs, and I mean, people were really, really surprised. And I was doing supports for people like Roger Chapman and, um, you know, the Dutch band, what they called Focus. Focus, yes. And, uh, 
yeah, and, and, and lots of other things. And they're all saying, hey, this really works with us and stuff. And so that was going really well. And then, I mean, I did that. I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, for, for, certainly for the last sort of seven, eight years. Right. And then, of course, uh, we got COVID. That came. That did come. So that stopped. So, for, I mean, I've got some music recorded, more music than songs, really, bits of instrumental stuff. And during COVID, I decided I'm going to make the album. And it's a project, and if I'm really honest, it was started 15 years ago in terms of bits of music. Um, and so my brother um, certainly couldn't play drums anymore. He was, he was becoming ill. My bass player, um, was he, he has some quite disabling kind of conditions as well. And so there was only me that was, but I thought, okay, I need, I need, perhaps I can get my bass player, you know, sort of working on some stuff and, you know, it's better than not doing anything. And it, it turned out because we were, we were under the COVID regime, we could spend as much time as we liked doing it on a laptop in my bedroom. Yes. And then I wanted some strings and I tried something, it didn't work. Somebody on Twitter suggested this guy who lives in Sweden. So I contacted him. He sent me parts. I've never met him. We've never had a telephone conversation or email. And he sent me some wonderful stuff. He plays guitar as well. He's fabulous. So Arthur, the bass player, who was always under the pressure like I was, come on, guys, we've spent half an hour on this track already. It is Abbey Road or whatever. We're paying so much an hour. It was... Well, uh, that bass is quite good, but could you this and that? He'd do version three, version four, version five, you know. Mm. And um, so this was, I was doing all the programming, all the synths, all the string arrangements and everything, right? Guitar. Yes. Acoustic guitar. And Arthur also played some slide guitar. And then he, a mate of ours from way, way back, a guy called John Leckie. Oh, yes, John Leckie, yes, John Leckie, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Radiohead, Muse, Verve, I could go on, hundreds. Anyway, when we first went to Abbey Road on our first album, he was an apprentice, and his first day's work was on that album, Wassa Wassa. Wow. So Arthur, sort of, he's talking to John, you know, like his mates, like, hey, John, you know, what are you up to? And John's saying, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm working on some songs, you know. Oh, right, send me some, send me something. So Arthur sends him the first couple of songs uh, that we did. And um, John said, oh, I, want, I love this. So I want to mix it. So bless him, John Leckie has mixed the entire album just because he likes it. Fantastic. So that's where we're at. It's called Break the Dark. And if you can give me... Um, uh, uh, well, I've got your email address. So what I will do, if you want... Yes. I will actually uh, send you a link... Dropbox where you can download a couple of the trucks and oh, play them. That would be amazing. I would love to do well, that. It, it doesn't. It doesn't come out until uh, the autumn, anyway. So you would have a, a sort of exclusive. An exclusive on this new yeah. project. Oh, this is fantastic. And that's that. Um, and have you got the artwork? Has that all been done as well? More, more or less. Yeah. There's a painter called Ian Pearsall that I've been making some music for, and cutting up his stuff into video, uh, just just because. You know, we can today, we can converse, we can send stuff, download stuff, whatever, share stuff. So he's done the sleeve, the painting for the sleeve. And he's done fragments of stuff with pictures of me and stuff. So we've got the components for it. We've got all the lyrics, obviously. Yes. Um, And so, yeah, it's called Break the Dark, by the way. The album's called Break the Dark. Break the Dark. First time ever that I've done an album with a title track, you know. Yes. so, you know, where the song is. And yeah. and are the songs, um, do they, I mean, just kind of curious, are they, have you kept them quite short? Are they quite experimental? Are they quite long? Do you sort of, you know, what subjects do you kind of explore on the album? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I explore, I suppose, the way I, I see uh, what's going on. I mean, Break the Dark is is, is a song about... Smiling at people, if you like. I mean, the, the, the big thing about that is, 
a smile can break the dark. Yes. Uh, there's a song called Bell of Trevelyan, which is a completely made-up ballad about a fictitious person. But, uh, she's, she's, she's a pirate. Not a pirate, but she's a wrecker. Yes. So she swings her lantern, her beacon, as it were, like they used to do in Cornwall to mislead the ships to, to go onto the rocks. But in actual fact, it's a song about spaceships. But you don't really know that until the end. Right. And, and, and so it's, a, it's really varied, but it's a reinvention, really. It's, it's partly acoustic, it's got strings, it's, it's quite partly rock. Um, but, I mean, I mean, everybody that I'm working with is quite pleased with it and thinks that it will be well-received and well-received in a very, very surprised way. I think most people that hear it, can't believe it's me. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Did but, you? But I, honestly, I love it. I love every single beat of it, and I can't say that about any other album so far. No, no. But that's that. That sounds exciting because um, it's probably been quite a long time since you've had a new album out. And um, well, Superchip was the last. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yes, that was, that was forty years ago. Oh, you do yeah. sound much more. You do sound. Has this kind of been quite a relief to sort of be able to? put a lot of that to one side and think about, rather than just, as you said, thinking about the past, thinking about the future, thinking, oh, this is much more interesting now. Well, it, it's, part, it's partly, um, it's not that I want to put the past away, of course, but, but I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to be a museum or consider that, you know, yes. and I never wanted to be a, a cover band of the Edgar Broughton band. And unfortunately today, there are lots of bands going around with the original name, and it's a cover band, really. It's people playing those songs who weren't there, who didn't write them, and so on. Yes. Um, I'm not going to give any names, but I could. You know, bands I've seen recently, and I, I just think it's a waste of time. So I wanted to divorce myself from that concept, and this is me. This is my album. It's about what I believe, what I stand for, what I think with a little bit of, you know, kind of uh, surreal, abstract, impressionistic things. You know, it's not all clear. You know, it, it's not this is that and that's black and that's white. There's room for people to interpret some of the songs in any way they like, which is true of some of the songs going back in the past, but in, in, in a way that I think is much more acceptable to a wider audience. So, for example, on my gigs that I've been doing, I've noticed that whereas it used to be the chaps meeting the Edgar Broughton band and the girlfriends and wives and partners were sort of stood there smiling, you know, now it's the women asking me the questions more and uh, are genuinely interested in the songs, talk about the songs. So for me, that's a breakthrough because it means that I'm, I'm, I've, I've kind of expanded a little bit. It's a bit broader. It's a bit more, yeah, it's got more sort of... Um, the seesaw's level, uh, you know. Yes, perhaps. absolutely. And does and with the writing at the moment, do you sort of mostly be able to, you know, just focus and get one song done, or do you sometimes have to sort of go back and work on sort of tracks that some you sometimes get slightly stuck with? I just wonder what that creative all process. All the best songs, all the best songs come almost immediately. We call it the muse. Um. But basically, I mean, most of the time, it's really, really hard work. You come up with a great first verse or a chorus, and then you have to do all the work to make it all similar and all of the same standard, you know. Because yes. I'm not somebody who just knocks lyrics out, you know, like a lot of people do, you know. But I suppose, um, I suppose the most important thing is that I, I feel free to do what I like, you know, um, and it's the first time that uh, I've ever worked with a bunch of people who actually know this is my album. They're working on, you know, Edgar Broughton's album. It's not the band, you know. It's And that's that's really liberating. I mean, it might not be. It could be really daunting and horrible. <laughs> but it's turned out to be fantastic, you know. Yes. Yeah. Is it something that you wished you'd done earlier in life and went... Mm, Couldn't just... have done it earlier for, for lots of reasons and... And, 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 you know, what I, I have no regrets, really. Not Because I realised the story had to need the next part and next week's part and, and then a year's later. Without all the events that do happen, you can't arrive anywhere. No. Because you're not really on the journey. You're not on a journey. You know, and 
I mean, yes, it might have been interesting if I could have done this 10 years ago, but I've done it now. Um, maybe this is a time when record companies are looking for people like me to do something different. I don't know. Maybe they weren't, you know, 10 years ago. So I'm really happy I've got a record deal. You know, it's it's great, you know. Oh, brilliant. What, I mean, what, the Edinburgh what? Band couldn't get a record deal to save our lives after a super chip. No. You know, I mean, we didn't try very hard, but we kind of knew the score, you know, and we, we, we ambled along and shambled along uh, for quite a long time. Um, but this is different. This is very serious. I'm very committed to this album and uh, hope it's a, it reaches the audience. That, that, that it should. Yes, and, that, and what la- and what label? Was... I've got to go. Oh um, yeah. I so what? Some bait in the ocean. Yeah, absolutely. What label are you going to be on now? Well, it's it's eclectic um, under the auspice of Cherry Red Records. Oh, which is now becoming the the largest independent in the country. You know? Indeed, we love Cherry Red. <laughs> Look, have an amazing time at the coast. <laughs> I will do. And thank you ever so much. And um, yes. Oh, oh, yeah, I'll um, keep in touch, but have a nice time. And um, thanks again, Edgar. All right, David. Take care. Excellent. Take care. I've enjoyed it. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive, um, th- massive thanks to Edgar Broughton for giving me the time for that interview. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived, mostly of the 80s indie scene, but uh, other decades as well. So uh, check those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Stream. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.